Hello, hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be diving into the wonderful world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and over a series of interviews, we're here to learn about how early-stage B2C startups raise money and look into the inner workings of venture capital. If you're interested in consumer-facing startups, have your own B2C startup, or interested in venture capital, you've come to the right place. Feel free to also follow us behind the scenes on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and for show updates, at Consumer VC. If you like what you hear out of these episodes, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We love hearing feedback, so don't be afraid to DM me on Twitter for suggestions. Our guest today is Hayden Williams. Hayden is a partner at Brand Project, an early-stage consumer-focused VC fund that has offices in both New York and Toronto. Apart from Hayden's experience as an investor, he has also been a founder. So in this episode, you're going to learn from someone who has been on both sides of the table. I'm really excited for this one, folks. So without further ado, here's Hayden. Hey, Hayden, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about your background and what attracted you to early stage consumer investing. Sure. So... If I look back at where I started out my career, it was in investment banking. Uh, and I actually started in investment banking in the financial institutions group in June of 2008. So right uh, smack at the beginning of the financial crisis. So it was an interesting time to be in the financial institutions group, specifically covering banks. Uh, so I was there for three and a half years uh, and ultimately decided shortly after getting promoted to associate that this is not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, and I was interested in working at a smaller company, maybe more of an operating role, but didn't know what viable transitions were available to me, uh, some of my background. So all of my friends were staying in finance or going back to business school, so they weren't really helpful. Um, so I was trying to reach out to people with professional experience of interest to see if they were up for coffee. Um, and in doing that, I thought, you know, this is when dating apps were, or not even dating apps, this was way before Tinder, but there were like the match.com and OkCupid. And I thought, you know, it'd be nice if there was the equivalent for professionals. If I'm looking to reach outside of my network, um, just like Facebook's uh, a great place to document your social network, but not to ask someone out on a date. Um, LinkedIn is a good place to document your professional network, but not to reach out to a, a stranger. And I thought that it would be nice if there's a platform where you could actually reach out to people professional experience of interest and, and get coffee with them if there's mutual interest. So ended up quitting my job to start a company, um, which we called Treatings. And I did that with my best friend and co-founder, Paul, did that for, uh, for over three years, actually. And uh, I could, you know, we could do a whole podcast just on what I learned doing that. Um, but ultimately, uh, decided to transition from that to venture in order to leverage everything I'd learned from all the mistakes I'd made. Uh, so I figured I could support founders by helping them focus on making original mistakes. Um, so I joined BBG Ventures uh, three and a half years ago, which is a small venture capital fund that invests in consumer startups with at least one female founder. Um, and the background there is that Susan and her partner, Nisha, uh, they founded the fund at a time when women were only getting 10% of venture capital. Uh, so aside from the fact that that's just ridiculous, um, they knew that women make or influence 85% of consumer purchases. So it's a financial opportunity to back women building products and services that they were likely to be the consumer of. Um, so I was there for three great years, learned a ton from them, uh, and then ultimately transitioned to Brand Project at the beginning of this year. So it's a long way of getting uh, to actually answer your question, but my interest in venture, uh, I love 
taking ideas and turning them into realities. And so since high school, I've been building small businesses and uh, now getting into venture capital, I was really attracted at the prospect of uh, helping entrepreneurs get to where they want to go. And I've found that being an investor is a great way to affect many big changes at once. Um, and so specifically for consumer, uh, I started in consumer just given that's what my startup was focused on. And uh, so I didn't have any experience in B2B, uh, but then I was then and still am very excited by supporting entrepreneurs who are creating totally new, delightful experiences for consumers. And so every day, you know, I'm meeting founders who are addressing common life challenges and reimagining daily life. And so it's really uh, an honor to, to be a small part in helping entrepreneurs that are building great consumer businesses. So I know you said that we could do a whole episode on what you learned when you founded Treatings, but briefly, what were some of the learnings as a founder that have helped you as an investor? Well, fundamentally, I learned how hard it is. Um, and that's not something to be taken lightly. And I think it really is important, not that every, not that every investor has to be a founder, but it's helpful and it helps with the empathy and understanding what it's like and how lonely it can be and how challenging it is to actually build a business. Um, so, so for just a high level, I think that that was helpful. Just every time I know what it's like to pitch VCs and I know what it's like to work with VCs. And I try to, in every conversation that I have, even with it, if it's just a pitch with a founder and we may never talk again, but I try, it's always in the back of my mind of what it was like for me when I was in that position. Um, and so I think that that's really helped me. Uh, hopefully be more empathetic and, and be helpful. Uh, you know, there, there are all sorts of specific learnings, uh, you know, like we, uh, how uh, tough it is to outsource important parts of your business at the early stage and, you know, all the different um, ways you can, can grow your user base and what, what the better ones are and what can be more challenging. And so some of those are more specific to treatings and the company that, that we were working on. Um, but from a high level, I, I think that founders uh, generally, given I know, what it's like to be in their shoes and how hard it is. I think that founders generally appreciate that I, I come from that perspective and, and all, also always just try to be helpful in every interaction, even if it's, if it's going to end in a pass, but just um, knowing that any bit of feedback or any introduction can really be game changing at the very early stages for uh, a founder. And so I think that all that is colored by the fact that I spent all those years in the trenches. Thank you for that. I especially like how empathy is one of your major takeaways from when you were a founder to now as an investor. I think that's so incredibly important. Uh, talk, so talk to me a little bit about time allocation amongst your portfolio companies between the winners and the maybe quote unquote or perceived losers uh, or those that are still finding their footing. We have a very unique model at Brand Project um, and we only make three or four investments a year and we are all in on those investments. Uh, and so we don't have the luxury of, of you know, letting the quote, quote unquote losers kind of just slough off and say, well, good luck. You know, we're, we're so involved in working with the companies that for us specifically, given how operationally involved we are and given the stage and given the, the um, small number of, of investments that we make here, for us personally, um, we can't afford to just to, to let the ones that are having more challenges to, to not focus on them. But actually, and then it just turns out that the companies that things come easier for them, they just require less, um, less of our time. And so you end up spending more time oftentimes with the companies where they're, they're having more challenges. And so we, uh, whether, whether things are, whether on a rocket ship or things are tougher, um, we're, no matter what we're going to be kind of, it, it ends up that we're spending more time with the, with the folks who are having more challenges and that's just the nature of the business. And we're, 
we're more than happy to do that. Got it. Well, that must be one of the advantages with having a smaller portfolio. And so the way that we differ from other funds is that every member of our team has operating experience uh, from industry-leading consumer companies, uh, and most of the team have been found as well. And we are willing to invest at the very earliest stages of a business, uh, including pre-launch, because seven of the eight members of our team are focused on operating, which means working directly with our portfolio companies. Uh, so our team structure is the opposite of most other funds, as there's just one person, being me, actually focused on sourcing deals, while everyone else is focused on working with our companies. Um, so because our, our team has have worked at these huge consumer companies, but also through brand projects, we have experience scaling direct consumer businesses ranging from dog food to human food to skincare. Um, there are just so many learnings that are transferable across all those categories that really allow us to accelerate the portfolio companies. Um, so whether that's helping with branding or growth marketing or technology or finance or supply chain ops, um, we actually will produce work for the companies that, that we're working with. And so that's why uh, when, when things are, to your previous question, when things are uh, harder than we all expect, we, we double down on those companies. And actually it's because it's going to be harder for them and maybe it's harder for them to bring on more outside resources. We really will fill in those gaps and we can be their temporary CFO or CEO, what have you. Got it. Wow. So thanks for diving into brand project, uh, how you guys invest and in, in the operations experience as well. Uh, and how you are able to help your portfolio companies. Uh, I saw that Brand Project are sole investors in the seed rounds of Daily Harvest and Freshly. When does it make sense for founders to only have one investor in a seed rather than a syndicate? It's always in a founder's best interest to surround themselves with value-add investors. Uh, but there is a breaking point when there can be too many people involved in a round of fundraising um, because at that point, there's no one that feels or takes any ownership. Um, so you really want investors that take meaningful ownership. And so we love working with, uh, with other investors to support founders, but we're also happy to be the sole investors in a round. And so because we lead rounds, we don't wait around for someone to, you know, for someone else to take the lead and then for us to follow on. Um, so we're happy to be the only investors, but also happy to co-invest if there are other people coming in that the company is excited about working with. That, that makes a lot of sense since Brand Project is so operationally hands-on. Now, I understand that you invest in a lot of uh, D2C brands, and there's been a lot of talk about how D2C brands haven't been able to scale up to venture capital returns. What are your thoughts towards that? An important facet of your question is really defining what the term venture capital returns means. Um, and it really, it, it's dependent on the size of a fund. So a $300 million fund needs different outcomes than a smaller fund uh, in order to be compelling. So because you really hope that uh, as a fund, that any, any investment has the potential to return the fund. Uh, many large funds do have to look at every investment through the lens of, could this be a billion dollar exit? Um, whereas if you have a smaller fund, then you can get very excited about a $250 million exit. And so it's, it's all about the size of your fund and the percentage ownership that you get in the companies uh, that, that dictates um, you know, how attractive a potential investment might be. So it's not to say that we, you know, we look for the biggest outcomes, but we don't have to look at everything through the lens of could this be a billion dollars. So what are some of the trends that you're excited about in consumer? Really excited by personalization. One of our portfolio companies uh, called Atola is doing 
Uh, they're actually our, our most recent investment. And it's a subscription company that's selling personalized skincare products. Um, so you basically take the quiz uh, and you there's a, a, a kit that they send you. Um, and so there's actually science to this where whereas many quote personalized skincare companies, you just take a quiz and then they suggest off the shelf products, or maybe you take a quiz and then they personalize a product, um, but there's really only two or three SKUs. Uh, Atola really leverages science. And so after you sign up, you, you receive uh, a skin health kit uh, in the mail and you use their special sensors, which are just small strips of paper, stickers uh, that you press onto different parts of your face. And that measures your complexion's oil, moisture, and pH level. Um, and so based on that, they generate uh, a custom serum. And so we're excited by that because, you know, we use data to inform all important decisions in our lives. And so it just makes sense that you would apply that to skincare. Um, so we're excited by a company like Atola that has the opportunity to build a, a really valuable skincare company by leveraging these skin analysis tools and data science uh, to produce uh, to products that are not just personalized, but also adaptive. Um, and it's also going to be very attractive to a comp to the large incumbent skincare brands that don't have relationships directly with their consumer um, and don't have any data. And so a company like Atoll is very attractive. Um, separately, uh, really excited about founders that are creating products and services for underserved communities. So one demographic that's historically been overlooked by VC is seniors. And this is despite the fact that the segment is growing and needs products that are purpose-built uh, and, in fact, is most likely to have the money to pay for them. Uh, so I'm really interested in innovative technology and uh, business models that make high-quality products and services accessible to these consumers and especially interested in platforms that give senior citizens not just access to services but give them a sense of purpose and control in your lives, which is... Actually, I read uh, a few years ago this book called Being Mortal, um, which is all about how the medical system and we as a society uh, treat people nearing the end of their lives. And it's not good. Uh, basically, research shows that loneliness is as much of a risk factor for early death as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, so it's really debilitating. Uh, but the optimistic view from the book is that improving quality of life for seniors doesn't require money or some crazy medical breakthrough, but rather just providing people with a sense of purpose, self-worth, and control. So uh, I'm always on the lookout for consumer products that helps achieve those things. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I've since I've read quite a bit about investors focusing on the Gen Z consumer, but I haven't heard or read much about investors in technology products that are focused on the senior community. Uh, so I thought that was very, very interesting. Uh, so what, what makes investing in consumer businesses more difficult than investing in other types of businesses? So as we all know, consumers are fickle, but I think that that's exactly what's exciting is looking for founders who are building products and services that delight these fickle consumers and their ever-changing desires. I think it's also what creates the market opportunity because the incumbents who have historically controlled market share aren't built to innovate quickly and many of them still don't even have a direct relationship to their consumer. So this creates a lot of opportunity for fast moving direct to consumer startups. I think that's very well put. And I think that, that the fickleness of a consumer is what makes it so attractive. 
So I'd imagine you have quite a rigid due diligence process when analyzing businesses as well as founders. So how, how do you establish trust amongst founders to make sure that they have their own decision-making processes and don't rely on just simply trusting their gut? It's a delicate tightrope to walk and it's a double-edged sword. So you don't want a founder that follows the ready, fire, aim methodology of making decisions. Uh, but you also don't want someone who agonizes over every decision and, and ends up not doing anything. So I subscribe to the aphorism that is often quoted, the perfect is the enemy of good. Because I think that really the challenge of perfection is that it can intimidate people. So they don't even try to do anything. So in my experience, the best founders love experimenting and don't fear failure. And in their company, they foster a culture that encourages rapid iteration. Um, and so instead of adding every conceivable improvement and feature, it's best to just ship your product and release improvements based on actual feedback. And it can be a great thing when you have a founding team with complementary personalities. So while one founder may be more of a gunslinger, maybe the other is more deliberate and task oriented and, and they end up balancing each other out. Wow. I really like what you said about decision-making and finding that balance as well as how you think about product release. So what are some of the common reasons why a company in Accelerator maybe isn't able to raise a seed or C Series A or get to the next round of funding? So I think that it's really no different than any company that fails to raise a seed round or really any round of funding. Uh, because companies of every type and stage have demonstrated the ability to raise money, whether they're pre-launched and run by first-time founders or even if they've launched and growth has stalled. Uh, so I, I don't think you can necessarily draw a straight line from um, failure to hit some specific metric uh, and failure to raise money. Uh, so really, I think that to successfully raise money, a founder has two basic tasks. Uh, first, they have to tell a story about why their product should exist, why they are the best person to bring it to fruition, and why bringing it to fruition could produce a great financial outcome. Uh, and second, the founder has to tell that story to the right investor. So someone who's demonstrated interest in the market and is likely to be wooed by their story. So I, I would say that while there could be any number of specific reasons an investor may offer for passing, uh, on a more macro sense, it's just a failure to communicate the right vision to the right investor. How do you trust like founder market fit and, and seeing even if this is a real problem that a startup should, uh, a, a product should be developed to, to tackle, uh, how do you ensure that, that this is the right founder, this is the right team in order to, uh, to do it? I, I think you learn a lot of that in the first two or three minutes of a meeting. So most meetings that I have with founders start with, tell me your story. How did everything in your life lead up to you starting this company? And why, is, why are you so passionate about this? And then you learn, most importantly, why they started this company. Um, and you know, the best stories includes that they have some unparalleled level of domain expertise and all that, but that's not uh, necessary, that's gravy. But what's necessary is a, uh, a real founding story where this isn't just some mercenary looking for a quick buck, but it's someone who just felt no other felt they had no other choice but to start this company, uh, whether because they they faced a problem themselves or someone they loved and cared for did, um, and and so I think that that's, those are you you pretty quickly suss out 
why people are, uh, are starting a business and if it's for the right reasons. I think those are some great traits that you look for in founders. What's one of your favorite books that has influenced you both professionally and personally? So one of my favorite books is called Born Standing Up, and it's by Steve Martin. And uh, the reason why I loved it so much is I think that when we look at successful people or even successful startups, we always focus on the success we do as people in the media. Uh, and it's easy to forget about or dismiss the time spent totaling in obscurity that was most likely the building blocks for that success. Uh, so Born Standing Up is really entertaining and it was fun to learn about the details of Steve Martin's comedy act. But the reason I found it so impactful is that as you read about his early life and career, you understand how deliberate he was in setting himself up for what later could be mistaken as an overnight success story. And so at this, something that I didn't know even before reading this, but at the peak of his stand-up career, which was 18 years, he was the biggest comedy act in the world. Uh, and he was the biggest, and he, to this day, is the biggest concert comedian uh, to ever go on tour. Um, and so, as he says in the book, uh, this 18-year career was really 10 years spent learning. And these are his words. 10 years spent learning, four years spent refining, and four years spent in wild success. And so I, I think it's important for everyone, whether that's individuals or companies, to remember that to be truly great and successful, you first need to do the work and lay the groundwork for later success. And that process is often arduous and unsexy, but it often pays dividends. And so it was fun reading about how someone I, I really look up to, I think Steve Martin, hearing a bit about his story and how he went through that same process. That's awesome. My wife and I actually recently saw C. Martin and Martin Short live at the Greek over the summer, which was an amazing show. Uh, so, and it seems like there's a lot of takeaways and life lessons in in his book. So, I'll certainly have to check it out. So, what's one company that you've been particularly excited about working with? I'm not going to select just one of the companies I've had the, the privilege of working with because um, there are you know, so many to come to mind. Uh, but I would just emphasize how proud I am to be the rookie at Brand Project. Uh, so I've only been here for six months, so I feel okay bragging behind the team's back um, since I'm, I'm the latest addition. But it's, it's personal for me especially because I, I wish I had people with the, the experience of Brand Project, and I'm talking about everyone else, you know, all the operators. And I wish I had people like that that were supporting me back when I was building my company, which was ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, and I'm certain that it would have been a more positive outcome. Uh, and so I know firsthand that there's so many blind spots that first-time founders have and so many time and money-sucking traps that even the smartest people can fall prey to. Uh, and they can ultimately be killers for young and under-resourced startups. So I'll just say I'm proud to, uh, to be on this team and, and learning from, from everyone as I have been and uh, proud to be being a small part of uh, supporting founders at, at the very earliest stages of their ventures. Very cool. That's, that's very exciting. Uh, so what's one company that you had the opportunity to invest in, didn't, and looking back, wish you did? Sure. Uh, well, this is kind of a, a funny answer in that. Uh, so we uh, at Brand Project um, in, or Investor Daily Harvest but when I was at BBG Ventures, my last fund, we actually passed on investing in Daily Harvest. 
And so fortunately for Brand Project, they did not make that same mistake. But at the time, uh, they were selling uh, ready-to-blend smoothies, direct-to-consumer. So it happens that I have a smoothie for dinner most nights during the week. I heard about it, and I had the smoothie, which was delicious, and I figured I was directly in their target market. So when I was thinking about it, I had some questions about the price. For those people, um, many of whom live in a food desert, daily harvest has really been a game changer. Uh, and furthermore, they've lowered prices and expanded their product offerings. So it's convenient, affordable, and accessible, whether you live in New York or in Des Moines. Uh, so that was one that uh, was an oversight on my, on my part that uh, fortunately my teammates did not make the same mistakes that I did. That's awesome. So one got away, but then you were able to invest in it later. Uh, so what, uh, since you were the target market when it came to smoothies, is that, is that helpful uh, if you are, if you realize that you are actually the, the target customer when you're evaluating companies? Well, yes, but in this case, I think I mistakenly thought was thinking too much in that bubble. Um, so I think it can be helpful. Um, it's certainly not necessary, but it, uh, it can be helpful. But I think I, I was actually too much lulled in the, complac the complacency that I totally understood the market because, in fact, I wasn't really the target market. Um, and there's all sorts of people that live in middle America that, uh, that again, don't live across from the street from a juice press or any one of these uh, stores. And so that was that that may have actually hurt me in, in evaluating the opportunity in that case. So what's one piece of advice you have for founders of consumer startups that are looking to raise venture capital? Um, I think it's, and again, this is, you'll hear this from a lot of investors, but first of all, you do want to make sure that this is a venture backable business. Uh, and again, that doesn't mean it can be, it has to be a billion dollars because there are smaller funds where a hundred million dollar outcome can be just great. Um, and so it's not, about the size of the of the market necessarily it could be but it doesn't have to be but it's also about how you want to run the business uh, really the the second that you start pouring venture capital into a business it, you're on a train that's going to be hard to get off and so you're going to be pouring money into growth marketing it'll be, it'll be different depending on the uh the company and the industry but you'll be pouring money into marketing and doing all the stuff that will be difficult to stop once you start and so you're on a train of growth and of presumably raising more money unless it's the rare exception where they raise their venture round and don't raise more money but likely you'll have to raise more and so once you're on that train you can't get off and so first i think just make sure that it's it does make sense to be a venture backable business because there are many businesses that are have the potential to be great businesses and great outcomes for the founders that don't necessarily need or wouldn't benefit and could actually be hurt from venture capital um and then just do the diligence when you're looking for investors to make sure you find the right investors uh, because that, as I mentioned earlier, that the, uh, it's very important to find folks who have done this before, people who have demonstrated interest. So you're not wasting time pitching people that aren't interested in your market. And so doing the homework that after you decide that this is a business that needs venture capital would benefit from it take the time to research all the investors in the space and find who has experience uh, in your in your space at the stage that you're at and then be thoughtful about uh, appealing to them personally and because at the end of the day it's, just, it's not any one metric that you need to raise venture capital it's all about the story and appealing to the, the investor and, and, and finding synergies about how you can work together so those would be two things I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, evaluating your moat or a competitive advantage, as well as your unit economics. 
Yeah. And also I would, I guess, supposed to add another one. Um, there's so many buzzwords, some of which I have thrown out today, such as personalization and, you know, not everything should be personalized. So sometimes I'll see companies that are like, you know, personalizing shaving cream or something like that's an example. I didn't actually see that, but the, the idea is that, um, personalization, for example, makes sense in, in some, uh, some categories, but you don't want to over-engineer something. And so that can be, if you're thinking about something too much from an engineering perspective and not from a customer need and customer problem perspective, it can be easy to, to over-engineer solutions to problems that people don't actually have. And so I think that starting from just first principles and thinking about solving a problem that is really nagging uh, for some subset of consumers um, is a great place to start and not thinking, oh, well, what if you applied personalization to this? Or what if you sold this direct to, to consumer? Like those in and of itself are not fundamental changes. It has to necessitate. Um, not every business, not every consumer product should be sold direct to consumer. Not everything can be personalized. So I think it's still like a tightrope of taking advantage of all the technology that we have today, um, but not wanting to over-engineer anything. I think that's a great point about over-engineering. So talk to me a little bit about Brand Project. You're located in New York and Toronto, two big startup hubs. Do you only invest in those geographic areas? So broadly, we'll invest anywhere in North America. And certainly we think that New York is a great place to build consumer brands. Um, so we, but, but we love to hear from consumer brands that are, that are based anywhere in North America. So really, it's, it's great when you're building... New York is growing so quickly from a consumer brand standpoint that it's a great place to be. Um, and another consideration are costs. And so if you're building something that's going to require a lot of engineers, it might be tough if you're in San Francisco and competing with uh, you know, all the enormous companies paying crazy salaries out there. So it's, we will look at companies anywhere. Uh, we, we definitely are mindful of looking at, okay, what are, how expensive will it be to build a company here? And is this the right place? Um, for any given company, and it's, and it's all different. There's certain types of startups that uh, where it's, there's no better place in San Francisco, um, but then there's there are a lot that maybe should be there because they're competing for talent that will be tough for them to attract. Um, and so we will invest anywhere, but it does just so happen that most of our most of us are New York. Uh, we have one in Canada, we have a couple in California, um, but there's a concentration here. But that's not because we're explicitly focused on that. Thank you so much for coming on again, Hayden. It was, it's been absolutely awesome learning about your insights as well as your story. Uh, I think there's lots of takeaways. Uh, so thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Well, and there you have it. That was Hayden Williams from Brand Project. Hayden, thanks again so much for coming onto the show. If you'd like to learn more about what Hayden's up to, feel free to follow him on Twitter at H-O-Willia. That's H-O-W-I-L-L-I-A as well as his fund at Brand Project LP. If you enjoyed the episode, which since you're still listening, hopefully you have, we would love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast app. If you have any suggestions on how we can make the podcast better, feel free to send me a DM on Twitter at Mike Gelb. If you want to follow along behind the scenes, of course you can follow along at Mike Gelb on Twitter and at ConsumerVC. Thank you very much and until next time, folks.